Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. the word of God, uh, as well as the words of Matthew the Apostle. As the word of God, it uh, cannot have errors in in it. Um, It is uh, without error. It is infallible because God is the ultimate author of it uh, in the original language in which it was given. That is, in this case, Greek, and indeed uh, all of the Bible in the Old Testament being uh, Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, it is there is no error in it, and we have the promise in faithful translations of the original languages that it remains to us the authoritative word of God. So listen to it accordingly, that is to say, carefully and reverently. Starting in verse 15 of Matthew 18. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he listens, if he refuses, rather, to listen to them, tell it to the church. And, If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the ruler and king of the church, your people. Uh, We thank you for this passage, sobering though it is, uh, that you have given the instructions contained herein, and that they are good and wise and needful. We pray that you would help us to all to receive these words as the word of you, our God and that we would be humbled, sobered, and um, encouraged by your sovereign rule and good rule over us, your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Kids, I know all of you children... uh, here. There aren't uh, too many young kids here today, but uh, um, <clears throat> I know you all. And uh, you've all 
been disciplined by your parents. You probably heard that word to be disciplined by your mom or your dad. Tegan, you've heard that word, right? To be disciplined, you've heard that word. You might not totally understand it, but when you get um, spanked, that's discipline. There are other ways that discipline occurs. Yeah, I know I saw her disappear. <laughs> there are other ways that discipline uh, occurs. Uh, it can not always be spanking. It can come in the form of grounding for some of you older uh, uh, children. It can come in the form of timeouts uh, um, sometimes, and there are other things I, I imagine as well, withholding of allowances and the like. But uh, when your parents discipline you kids, and it is biblical that uh, parents are to discipline their children, uh, in the case of Christian parents, at least all the parents here, they are doing it out of love for you, even though it's not very pleasant uh, when it occurs for those of us who are on the receiving end of discipline, right? It's not fun. But your parents are doing it because they love you. You see, they do it, they discipline you, when you do something that's sinful. Um, for example, showing your parents disrespect. If you uh, don't show respect to your mommy, your daddy may discipline you. Uh, if you um, hurt your brother or your sister, uh, be unkind. You may get uh, disciplined. If you're, you will get disciplined, I would imagine, if your parents, uh, one of your parents uh, sees that happening. If you tell a lie. These are all sinful activities that discipline is the appropriate response by a loving parent uh, to a child who is sinning. <clears throat> and they're doing it not only because what you did is sinful, but they do it because they don't want you uh, to want to do such sinful things in the future. They want you to see, oh dear, I really don't want to tell a lie because there will be bad consequences if I do. And so I don't want to do that. I'm going to tell the truth, even if it's difficult sometimes. Um, and uh, discipline from your parents, which is unpleasant, helps you to realize that sin is unpleasant and unwise and to cause you not to sin uh, as you grow up as much as you otherwise would. And so it is for your good that your mom and dad discipline you if they are uh, dis- disciplining you in a godly Christian fashion. And there is good discipline, and of course there's bad discipline too. Uh, and I'm presuming the good discipline when I tell that to you. All people, men, women, children, we are all conceived in sin. I hope that's not a news flash to anybody here. We are all conceived in sin, and because we are all conceived in sin, we are therefore conceived as enemies of God. God is our enemy. He, we are his. At conception, because we have Adam's sin credited to us the moment we are brought into this world. Now, that's the bad news. But God... Because he is a enormously, indeed infinitely gracious and merciful God, God has willed to rescue many sinful people from the punishment that their sins, uh, that they rather deserve on account of their sins. God rescues them in two ways. First, by by the, the fact that he has sent God the Son into this world as the God-man, 100% God and 100% man, to purchase 
the salvation of those people whom God wishes to forgive and pardon. And Jesus, of course, did that by means of his atoning work, his uh, substitutionary life, death, resurrection, and ascension, which he rendered on behalf of all of God's elect, or those whom God wished to save. That's the first way in which God rescues, by sending the Savior. And secondly, he rescues us, ultimately, by applying, that this is God the, the Holy Spirit, applying that Christ-purchased redemption to those individuals whom he wills to save at a certain point in their lives by means of the converting his converting work, regenerating work in the heart, and giving the gift of faith. Once one of these elect sinners whom God has forgiven is so forgiven and converted, once that happens, that individual is required by God, and I underline the word required, by God in, his, in the Holy Scriptures that he himself has written to join a local church. Now, some may not realize that this is the case. Uh, there are three verses that, uh, that, that implicitly teach this fact, only one of which I'm going to read to you, but I'm going to give you the others so you can look them up. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, uh, teach this point by implication of what's said there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, also teach by implication the fact that somebody must join a church if they are a Christian. And the final one, and this is perhaps the clearest, which is the reason I'm making the point to read it, and that is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which says this, the writer of the Hebrews writing to a church uh, of uh, people, uh, Christians, and he says this to them. He gives this command. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Folks, you cannot obey leaders or submit to leaders if you are not under their authority, have not willingly come under that authority, and have not received agreement from them that they will be over you in authority, loving authority, uh, to pastor you and to help you grow in your Christian walk and to also uh, deal with you if you uh, uh, go astray. You cannot do that unless you are a member of, have joined, uh, have committed yourself to a believing uh, community uh, known as a local church. And so a church is one who, uh, that you are to belong to where uh, you have agreed or committed, as I've already indicated, uh, to come under their spiritual care. So there's there is the uh, the individual congregant agrees this is uh, a church that I can come under their authority and under its leaders, and then also that church will be a church that you yourself have agreed I am under their authority. They've agreed to pastor me, and I've agreed to come under their authority. And all Christians uh, should belong to a um, Bible believing uh, church, visible. Uh, body of believers. Now, here is the thing about all churches, all church communities, local, uh, national, transnational. All churches are filled with sinners. Indeed, every last member of every last church is a sinner. They are forgiven of their sins if they are Christians, but they remain sinners. 
You all are sinners. I'm a sinner. Now, yes, all Christians struggle with the remnants of the sinful old man within. The Bible teaches, Paul particularly, that this old man doesn't go away when we are regenerated. Uh, That remnant of sin, that principle of sin that he talks about in Romans 7, is still there, waging war uh, inside of us. Now, he's a defeated adversary, but he's still waging that guerrilla warfare, and he hasn't breathed his last, uh, if we can personify the old man for a moment. We are stuck with him the remainder of this life here on earth until the Lord takes us into glory, in which case he takes his final breath. And we are freed from sin. But that struggle is a lifelong struggle for the Christian. And we are all commanded to struggle. To fight against sinful inclinations, attitudes, thoughts, words, and actions. And then to strive to rid ourselves of such things as much as possible with the help of the Holy Spirit and His grace. It's a requirement. It's an obligation. It's a blessed one, but it is indeed an obligation. And the Lord Jesus Himself, as King of the Church, has willed that the church, the local church, to which we belong as Christians, play a key, I might even say the key role, in helping us progress in this struggle to put off what remains of sin in our lives and to put on increasingly Christ-like righteousness. And that process by which the local church uh, uh, helps us as Christians is by discipline. By discipline. I want to read you a portion of what the Presbyterian Church in America's Book of Church Order says on the subject of church discipline. This is actually chapter 27. You can look it up online if you'd like to uh, at a later time, not now. Uh, but here's what it says. We read there in uh, uh, 2027 of, of the BCO, Book of Church Order, uh, paragraph 1, Discipline is the exercise of authority given the church by the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct and guide its members and to promote its purity and welfare. The term discipline has two senses, the BCO says. And this is derived from Scripture, of course. Uh, We believe it to be. But here are the two senses in which uh, discipline uh, exists in the church. First, the one referring to the whole government inspection, training, guardianship, and control which the church maintains over its members, its officers, and its courts. And the second sense is this. The other is a restricted and technical sense of the meaning of the word discipline, signifying judicial process. Judicial process process. The passage before us here in Matthew 18, verses 15 and following, describes church discipline of the second sort that is mentioned uh, in the Presbyterian Church of America's BCO that I just read to you. That judicial process, 
That is what is described here in Matthew in our text this morning. The process that Jesus says is to be undertaken by a church community when one of its own members commits some obvious sin that he or she does not quickly repent of. Which brings me, finally, that was all by way of introduction, (laughs) to the two points that are coming from this text. The first... We're going to, first, we're going to look at the steps of properly exercised church discipline in verses 15 through 17. And secondly, we are going to look much more briefly at the authority behind properly exercised church discipline, which is in verses 18 through 20. First, we see in verses 15 through 17 the steps, and there are stages or steps of properly exercised, and I underline that word properly. Uh, this process has been, certainly can be, and certainly has been abused in places, uh, churches, and in, in times present and in times past. But properly exercised church discipline comes, is followed, follows the steps that we read here in verses 15 through 17 of our Lord. So, the steps. Let me read again, verses 15 through 17. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Notice who is speaking here. This is the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. This is the great shepherd of the church. You may wonder why we sang the 23rd Psalm this morning or why we read from Ezekiel this morning. Because... uh, it was about shepherd, shepherds and the great shepherd of the church, the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, and he is the one who is giving this process to us. The church, you see, belongs to him. He purchased her, you and me, individually and collectively, with his own infinitely valuable divine life, represented in the blood that he shed on the cross. And as the church's Redeemer and King or Lord, he has the absolute right to dictate how the churches, how, uh, how the churches, uh, to, rather to the church, how undealt with sin among her members is to be addressed. And dictate he does right here in this passage. Now it is true that Jesus here is speaking to the apostles here in Matthew 18. But it is abundantly clear from what we read about church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and perhaps some other places as well, but certainly those two passages, and we're not going to take the time to look at them now, but it's abundantly clear when you look at those passages that do speak about church discipline that Jesus is speaking to the apostles here in Matthew 18 as representatives of the church at large. He's not just speaking to these 12 men, in other words. 
He's speaking to all of the church down through the ages henceforth. To us. So, in light of that, the disciplinary process set forth here is how the Lord Jesus wills that unrepented of sin among his people be dealt with until he returns in glory. This is it. So, before we get to the steps here, let's just briefly look at what Scripture says about the purposes for which this process of church discipline is given. There are three that uh, are commonly understood to be taught in Scripture, and I will uh, look at the Scripture passages uh, very briefly. The first is this, and that is to bring the spiritually wayward individual or church member to an understanding of his sinfulness and of his need to repent of his sinfulness and then to cause him to actually repent of his wrongdoing. 1 Corinthians, that passage I referenced referenced a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 5, in verse 5 of that chapter, Paul says there, after he speaks about the man uh, who is in an incestuous relationship uh, in the church there, he says, I have delivered... I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Notice the purpose there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal with what it means to have uh, the destruction of the, his flesh. Um, not, uh, don't want to get into that now, but, but the second portion of it is the purpose, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the reclamation of the wayward professing Christian is one of the clear uh, purposes for which church discipline is uh, to be exercised. A second purpose that is mentioned in also in that 1 Corinthians 5 passage is that uh, church discipline is given to the church to spiritually protect the other members of the believing community, specifically to protect them from thinking uh, that unrepented of sinful behavior on the part of Jesus' followers is somehow okay with Jesus. It's not. Uh, and I'll read that passage in, a, I'll read it right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, the verse right after the one I just read, he says to this congregation, and he's, he's rebuking the elders here, by the way, He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's a metaphor. For a little sin in your midst, undealt with, will spread in your midst, just like leaven does in in dough. And his point is, that mustn't happen. And you need to exercise church discipline of the, of, the, uh, of the sinning individual who has not yet repented of his sin. You need to exercise it to protect the other members of the flock from thinking that's okay, or perhaps even from being led uh, into that very sin themselves by the individual who is uh, getting away with it in the congregation because the church isn't dealing with it. The third reason for which, or purpose for which church discipline is set forth by our Lord here, is that God's name or reputation, essentially one and the same thing, might not be dishonored among men. Over in Isaiah, chapter 48, 
God himself, through the prophet, speaks uh, of his zeal for his name and his glory. And we read first in verse 1, and then I'm going to skip to verses 8 uh, through 11. Isaiah 48, verse 1, he's speaking to Israel. He says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, you who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. And then he says a number of other things about them. Uh, And then he says down in verse 8 this, the Lord speaking here, You have not heard, you have not known. Even from long ago your ear has not been open, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously. And you have been called a rebel from birth. And then he says this, For the sake of my name I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. It is clear that God is zealous for his own glory. And he, in the person of the second, uh, of God the Son, Jesus, we as Christians in the, in the church wear Jesus' name in our baptism. And so what we do affects his reputation, as it were, his name, his glory. And he is zealous for protecting his name and his glory. And so, church discipline is to help root out sin in the body of Christ so that God may not receive dishonor uh, from such behavior. Those are the three reasons, purposes rather, for which the process has been instituted by Christ. What are the steps, briefly? Step one. We are told in verse 15, you are to go to your brother and reprove him. This step is addressed, by the way, to individual church members. Not to church leaders, but to you folks who uh, uh, are individuals. Any member of the local church as an individual who witnesses firsthand, I might add, it needs to be firsthand, a sin or sins committed by another professing Christian of which that person has not repented if you've been the witness of it, and you see it in another individual. Um, uh, This command to go and reprove your brother is for you to obey. Now it is important, let me stress this, it is important that you and I exercise good judgment when we are trying to decide who to confront about what sin. You and I don't need to call out, it seems to me, every little sin we see in every little person. That's not going to go over well, and I don't think it's the point here. But, if and when you decide that it is appropriate to reprove another brother or sister in Christ, there must not be a hint of self-righteousness in your heart, in your voice, or in your countenance.
And you need to go to this person privately, in private, so as not to unnecessarily embarrass him or her. That's very important, privacy. Privacy, by the way, also implies that you haven't spoken with others about this brother or sister's sin. Right? In private. You go first to the person. You don't go talk to anybody else about it. You go to the person. Especially if it's against you and you have taken offense. If he listens to you, the text tells us, you have won your brother over. Uh, the text actually uh, is... You've gained your brother or regained your brother. But, the text goes on and says, if he refuses to respond to your reproof by acknowledging that he has done something wrong and and then repenting of that wrongdoing, if he does that, if that's his response to you, step two, verse 16 says, take along one or two other people and confront him a second time. Always in love, but confront him a second time. What's the purpose of taking another person or two along with you? Well, verse 17 makes it clear in the very beginning of it there where it says, let me get back to it. Um, Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen to them. So notice it's not just you who's speaking to this individual about his or her sin. It's you and the other two people, one or two people that you've brought along. right? So it's a collective um, should we say confrontation, pastoral confrontation that takes place at this stage of the game. So the other witnesses there, or the other people rather there, are there to help you uh, to, uh, to confront this individual, this wayward brother or sister. That's one reason you need them. And the second is also set forth in verse the end of verse 16 in that quote from the Old Testament. And that is so that there might be multiple witnesses to the outcome of this second attempt to uh, to call this person to repentance. We need witnesses. By which, uh, with two or more, by which a fact may be confirmed. What in fact has taken place. It becomes increasingly important, you see, that facts be established. Uh, that this person has actually been uh, recalcitrant. Uh, and it's not just one person's word versus another person's word. If, after this second approach to the wayward brother or sister, he refuses to acknowledge and repent of his sin yet again, verse 17 says, you now need to take the matter to the church, collectively. Now, that the term church here is a reference to the local church's elders is evident from the fact that it is with the elders that the authority to shepherd and rule over and oversee the flock of Christ resides. Let me read these verses to you because I want you to see that I'm not just pulling this out of a hat. So, Acts chapter, there are three verses we're going to look at quickly in succession. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul is speaking here to the uh, Ephesian elders saying goodbye to them, giving them one last charge. And he says there in verse 28 of chapter 20, Be on guard for yourselves, you elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You oversee 
you supervise, you rule over the flock. And then he says, to shepherd or pastor the church of God, which he purchased, notice Jesus is God, with his own blood. A second passage that teaches that uh, this this authority to uh, rule over and shepherd belongs to the elders and not the whole body of Christ collectively, uh, although indirectly the body uh, elects the elders. Um, but First uh, Timothy chapter five verse seventeen, he speaks there. Paul says, "Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor." Notice all elders rule. They rule. They rule over people. They rule over the flock uh, uh, that Jesus has charged them to rule over. And then again, First Peter chapter five, verses one and two, similarly uh, speaks to the same truth. And that is, if I can find it. Therefore, uh, Peter speaking now. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you, so there there are the elders, I exhort the elders among among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And he goes on and speaks of Jesus, the chief shepherd, down in verse 4. I commend that to your reading later. You see, it's not to the whole congregation that you have to bring the individual. It's to the, the representatives of the congregation who do the overseeing, the pastoring, the ruling that you are to be brought to uh, when, Paul, when Jesus says, take it to the church. And then the elders confront the individual as a uh, uh, they they uh, confront the individual, um, and then if he still refuses to listen to the board of elders to acknowledge his sin, to grieve over it, and repent of his sin, then you take the most drastic step of all, and it is drastic. Christ here commands the elders to remove that individual from the membership of the believing community, to excommunicate him. And they are to do this, the elders are to do this, and the church through the elders, uh, by solemnly declaring that person to be spiritually on a par with a Gentile or a tax tax gatherer, which is to say, an unbeliever. So the church declares, we declare you to be an unbeliever. And because, and by declaring him to be uh, like a a Gentile or a tax gatherer, the elders are saying that as far as they can tell from the evidence that this person has exhibited, He isn't a true Christian. Even though he has been posing as a Christian, he is not a true Christian, as far as the elders can tell. And because he lacks a believable or credible profession of faith in Christ as his Savior and Lord, he doesn't belong in the church, which is the church of the redeemed 
which is the community of all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. A credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't belong there anymore. So he needs to be removed from the church. On account, and what's the evidence? Well, the evidence that, that causes the elders to, uh, to think that he is unbelieving is his repeated refusal to repent of his sins. His stubborn refusal to turn away from his sinful ways. And that is the evidence uh, because you see, repentance from sin always accompanies, imperfectly, but it always accompanies faith which savingly, savingly unites a pers- person to Jesus. It is, uh, it's often said that uh, uh, f- uh, repentance is uh, the other side of the coin from faith, if you will. Faith is alone what justifies us, but with faith, there is always repentance. Faith in Christ that saves. Now, I will say this. It is possible. It is possible that on occasion, a true believer may be executed. No, we don't do that. We don't just... Anybody who's out there listening to this sermon, we don't do that. Uh, Excommunicated... Uh, a person who is in a, a true church, uh, a true believer, rather, may be excommunicated from a local church that has faithfully followed, faithfully followed, the process outlined by Jesus here in this passage. It is possible for that to happen on occasion. How is it possible? Well, it happens when his repentance from his sin doesn't arrive in a timely enough fashion. It arrives, because he's a true believer, but it's only after he's been excommunicated that he has come to his senses. But here's the thing. For the person who is the true Christian, who has been excommunicated from uh, uh, legitimately by a faithful body of believers and a faithful uh, body, uh, board of elders... A person who is an excommunicated individual, though he may actually be a Christian, has absolutely no right to believe that he is a Christian. Until, unless and until he repents of the sins that triggered that church discipline in the first place. He may be a believer, but he has no right to think he is. Because he he's exhibiting unbelief unchristian behavior by his recalcitrance, his lack of willingness to turn from sin that has been clearly pointed out to him on multiple occasions. And hopefully the shock, and in the case of the believer, this will happen, the shock of having been put out of the believing community may well be the means that the Holy Spirit of God uses to bring him to his senses and cause him to repent. And we have seen that in our church in times past. We've discussed the steps that will be followed when church discipline is properly exercised. Now, very briefly, very briefly, we're going to see why the exercise of church discipline is such a serious matter. And that is because of the authority behind it. And this is brief. 
my second point, is the authority behind properly exercised church discipline. The last three verses of our text, look with me there. Again, briefly, let me read them to you. So, let me read verses 17. Well, I'm the last three verses of our text, verses 18 through 20, elaborate on what goes on in the last step of the disciplinary process, the one involving the elders or the church in verse 17. So let me reread 17 through 20. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, meaning its leaders. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And then he says right after that, in this context of church discipline, truly I say to you, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, Jesus' name, There I am in their midst. This is all about church discipline. Those three verses is all about church discipline. Specifically, the last step articulated in verse 17. That last step of the process, we learn in verse 20, is presided over by the exalted king of the church himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. In other words, when this process has taken place, I'm there, is what Jesus is saying. The two or more mentioned in this verse refers to the elders, who have gathered together in their official capacity as the church's leaders and pastors to confront this recalcitrant church member and to render their verdict as to his spiritual condition following their confrontation of him as a church, or as a body. And and the verse clearly indicates, verse 20, that Jesus himself will be spiritually present with them in a special kingly way, I'll put it that way, judicial way as they act in their official capacity as rulers over God's people. And Jesus is there. And then, verses 18 and 19 indicate that the verdict or the decisions which the elders render with respect to this individual who they have confronted, that the verdict or the decisions which they render will have been verdicts or decisions of the head and great shepherd of the church himself, Jesus. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth, and I am, I am modifying the uh, New American Standard from which I'm reading here because it's not, it's not um, uh, translated quite correctly. Whenever you sh- whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, shall you elders, shall have been loosed in heaven. That sounds really awkward, and it is, but it's important. Because, first of all, the word bind, bind and loose, I'm going to define those for you. Bind means to declare unlawful or to forbid. Or you can say and to forbid. To declare unlawful and to forbid. And to loose means to declare lawful and to permit. So, 
based on the elders' assessment of the confronted man's spiritual state after their confrontation with him, they, the elders, either declare his profession of faith in Christ, remember he's a church member, either declare his profession of faith in Christ to be lawful or unlawful, you see. And on the basis of that judgment regarding his spiritual state, either permit or forbid him to remain in the community of believers. Serious stuff. And if they, the elders of a local church, have rightly, and that's key because they don't always rightly, but if they're godly, it's liable to be rightly rendered decision. If the elders of the church have rightly assessed the facts of the case of the individual involved and that individual's spiritual condition of their, the spiritual condition of their heart, then the verdict that was, then their verdict that they rendered as a board of elders regarding this individual, that verdict had already been rendered in heaven by Christ. That's what the will have been bound. It's a paraphrastic future perfect construction. Anyway. I had to... Never mind. Anyway, um, that's the case. Christ has already said it. The elders are merely parroting what Christ has already said in heaven about the individual and about their condition. And that's particularly evident in that Greek that I just cited there, or the the proper translation of the Greek. By the way, it's further confirmed, this interpretation is further confirmed by what Jesus says to the apostles uh, post-resurrection in a in a uh, a verse that is very similar to and and deals with the same subject matter uh, as this one that we're reading here in 18, uh, 18-18. And that is over in John. This is after his resurrection. Jesus speaks to the apostles. Uh, as representatives of the church, of the New Testament church. And he says, starting in verse 22 of John chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20, verse 22, And when he had said this, he just said, Peace be to you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he said this, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And they were elders. Remember the First Peter 5, uh, 5 passage? He says, uh, he's an apostle of Christ, and he speaks to the elders, I exhort you elders as your fellow elder. So all the apostles were elders as well. Uh, and they were speaking, and he was speaking to them there in John 20 as elders, as well as apostles. Uh, and he is speaking of that binding and that loosing uh, process there. And that confirms the point that I'm making here, excuse me, that the text is making. I'm not making, I'm just un- unpacking the text. So, a subject of properly exercised church discipline. And you must never be that subject. And by the way, that's the application of this sermon. Don't ever come under church discipline or do something that will get you under under the formal process, uh, other than just have your brother or sister uh, reprove you for uh, uh, for doing something wrong. But the, a subject of properly exercised judicial process in the church must accept any verdict or decision that his 
godly elders render concerning him as Christ's verdict from heaven. It's a frightful thing. It really is. If it's bad news, of course. If it's good news, if the person repents at the last minute, and genuinely there's genuine evidence of repentance, then the church, uh, the elders say, okay, we, we are not going to put you out of the church. That's good news. And that message is from heaven as well. But you see the point. This is never a process you want to be involved in. Sadly, very few churches do this. We do. And that's what Christ wants. It's what he commands. And we mustn't be all um, self-righteous about that just because we do it and other churches don't. But the fact is it's the right thing to do. And it's for your good and my good. By the way, I'm under discipline too. It's by the presbytery. I'm a member of the presbytery. And they would discipline me and uh, excommunicate me if I were to act in an untoward way uh, and uh, not repent of it. But the point is we all need the shepherding and the pastoring of God, of, of Christ, the great shepherd, through his appointed instruments, that is, the elders of the church. Because you folks know this. The old man's still there. It's in me. It's in you. He is in me. He's in you. He's part of me. He's part of you. Yes, we are new creatures in Christ, but sin didn't go away. And the desire to sin just didn't go away when we were converted. Sad to say. But it's for the glory of God that it is that way. Otherwise, it would be different. So we need to be helped. And sometimes that help is tough love from the church. And churches that don't do it, I hate to say it, but they're not really loving their people the way they should. And the process is its difficult, it's unpleasant, but it's right. Praise the Lord that Jesus cares enough about us to set up a process like this to keep us from going to hell. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, that you do pastor your people that you are the shepherd of the entire flock, that elders like myself are merely your servants whom you've appointed to be the instruments through which you minister to your people and discipline them. And not just in a negative judicial way, but praise the Lord, you through preaching and teaching and discipleship and brotherly interaction uh, that, too, is arguably even more important aspect of your discipline, which is pleasant and a wonderful thing. We ask, Lord, that you would use that pleasant discipline of the word read and preached and um, uh, biblical conversations and discipleship and so on in our midst. We ask that you would use those things, Lord, to keep us on the straight and narrow. That is to say, to keep us faithful to you, men and women, children who keep short accounts with you, who don't let sin fester in our hearts, but that quickly repent when we 
either by uh, your uh, convicting presence, Holy Spirit, or by another brother or sister who comes to us, see that we have done wrong. And we need to turn from our wrong and walk in new obedience. We pray that you would use the the uh, first method of church discipline so that the next, the second one is never needed. But we thank you, Lord, that judicial process is there and that it, it, it bears with it your divine kingly authority, which puts the fear of God into us, which is a good thing when we uh, are being stubborn sheep. We pray that you would forbid that any of us should be stubborn sheep. And we pray that this process wouldn't be needful in this church anytime soon. But again, we thank you that it's here. And we thank you that you use such things for your good and for your glory and for the good of your church. Lord, if there's anyone here who is playing games with you, who's not a Christian right now, who thinks he or she is, or says he or she is, but who is deliberately defying you, not trusting in you uh, as Lord of his life, King of his life, but just wants to you as a get-out-of-hell-card-free, we pray that you would convict such a one that they are lost, and that you would cause him or her to repent of their idolatry of self, and to flee to you, Lord Jesus, as his only hope of being forgiven and going to heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.